Hi, this is Dr. Jose Saldivar with another episode of the Way to College podcast. Uh, every week, I have um, the good fortune of, of sitting down and visiting with some amazing folks, and this week is no different. Um, this week, um, my guest is, um, wow, I, you know, I haven't thought about it. how do I introduce this person? I've, so I typically, I typically hand it over to my guests to introduce themselves. Um because, because you know, the folks that I interview, I, I think are doing amazing things and it's hard to really condense it into, into a title or anything like that. So, Rolando, why don't you introduce yourself to the guests or oh, to our, um, our audience? I'm sorry. That's a very nice, ambiguous <laughs> introduction. Uh, fair warning, listeners. I told Jay I was going to try to make him laugh as much as possible during this interview. So if it goes off the rails, it's... It's his fault for inviting me. Anyway, <laughs> um, my name is Dr. Rolando Longoria. Most people call me Dr. Rolo. I am a PhD in sociology, so a sociologist. Um, I guess the safest way to say it is I teach at a local Texas college, um, and I'm the chair of the sociology program. <laughs> And I study uh, gender violence, violence against women and indigenous communities, and especially LGBT people. So, Rolando, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having, thank you for insisting on having me. <laughs> Let this be my Shit's Creek moment. I am a star. Shine <laughs> bright like a diamond. Thank you. Okay, here we go. <laughs> So, so I ask all my guests, um, you know, that the, the podcast is called the way to college podcast. And I ask my guests uh, to take us back, take us back uh, as far back as you would say um, that, that you can say is sort of, this is the beginning of my educational journey. Where would that, where would that be? Okay. That's a really hard one. Um, not because, uh, I had some amazing out of this world education. Well, I did, but um, <laughs> thank you, university. That we'll get to in a minute. Um, but my parents from a very, very my parents are from the same area that you you grew up in. Um, all my family's from the same area that you grew up in. Um, but I was born in San Antonio, and then we moved to a different area of uh, Texas. Um, from a very, very young age, my parents instilled in me that education was really, really important. And so when you are in school, you were always having respect for the person who's teaching you, um, whether that's the person at the chalkboard or someone giving you a lecture in the hall because you ran down it, like the custodian. So my parents were always very, very um, adamant that we would at least be respectful and pay attention and that we would go to college because both of my parents remember being Mexican-American in South Texas and being told by their high school counselors that they, would, they weren't smart enough for college, even though they themselves knew that they were. So that was what we call in sociology kind of one of the... Um, now the, gee, now the term has slipped my mind. Uh, what do we call it? I hate sort it of like the subtle um, education that we get, a form of socialization that we get from our parents and community outside of the classroom. 
So because of their experience, right, they wanted to instill, they, I mean, clearly they wanted you to have a very different experience, right? Yes, definitely. Okay. So wanted you to go to college and I, you know, I ask a lot of my guests the, the age old question, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh my God. Um, when did we finish growing up? Have we decided that yet? <laughs> you know, but that's, so that's part of the, 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 the reason, the reasoning behind the podcast is, you know, we tell kids, right. You, you go to school and you get a job and you're going to do this job for the rest of your life. And that's not the way life works, mm-hmm. but we feed this narrative to kids and you know, you're not the first guest that says, you know, that ask that same question. Well, when exactly do we grow up? When do we realize, kind of come to that moment? Because we're constantly evolving. You know, we, we get tired of jobs. We move on to other jobs. We look for other opportunities. We, you know, feel like we, we need to grow a little more. And so, I mean, yeah, that's why I wanted to do this podcast was kind of to, to disrupt that narrative that we feed to kids and, and help them feel like it's okay that you're all of 18, 19 years old and you don't have life figured out because most of the adults that are telling you that you should haven't figured it out themselves. I think that's probably the space where my experience wants to live because that was mine. So um, full disclosure, my mom has a master's in education. She was, uh, uh, I think she taught third and fourth grade and also elementary school Spanish. Um, My father is an MD, so he works in a particular city in Texas. Um, You'll probably Google my name and find him anyway, so now you know. Um, You probably want to edit that out, but if you don't, that's okay. (laughs) Um, But so there was this very particular notion that because my parents didn't have it figured out, and because they were basically um, discriminated against in their high school years, they wanted us to make sure that we could do it, we would do it, and we were expected to do it, uh, which was go to college. So that also came with other messages. We call that the hidden curriculum. Now I'm going to remember, right, now that we're not at that part of the conversation. Part of the hidden curriculum of that socialization is People ask constantly asking you, however often, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, whether it's every 41 years, Dr. Saldivar, <laughs> or, you know, however often it is. And that idea evolves as we evolve as children, right? So, you know, when you're little, you're like, um, I want to be El Valiente from the Loteria card, you know. You don't know what you're talking about, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I always had my sights set on El Catrin, but go ahead. <laughs> well, really, I wanted to be La Chalupa, but I didn't know what she was all about. I just knew that there's <laughs> flowers and like a canoe and water and nice hairstyles. And I was like, I'm there. Bring the mole, right? So um, so when I was little, I wanted to be La Chalupa. <laughs> um, not, La, not Cholula, not the sauce, but anyway. Um, and so... As that evolved, when I grew up, it kind of grew into, um, I want to be like my dad. I want to be a doctor. I want to go to medical school, um, those kinds of things. And I think for me, 
the outward and overall message was if you go into the sciences, you'll be fine. You'll figure it out. It has to be some kind of science, but a real science, right? Like, um, I don't know, biology, uh, human biology, which I got my undergrad degree in, uh, medicine, um, veterinary science, physical therapy, um, engineering, computer science, all of the lucrative things, right? And as and let's just fast forward. I don't know where <laughs> Dr. Salivat is going to go with this, but at Stanford, I was the person who was majoring in science and who was okay at it. You know, <clears throat> I kind of had my B average going. Um, but then you asked me like a Chicano studies question and I would write your whole essay for you, right? Like in like 20 minutes and then be like, oh, and you should also include this mural because it was really interesting from the standpoint of blah, blah, blah. And people would say, well, why aren't you majoring in that if you're good at that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started to take the classes and then they started to say, well, why aren't you majoring in that if you're taking the classes? Um, and it was because I got the very strong message of, you need to be in a lucrative field um, because your degree will drive what opportunities come to you. It'll be this universal filter that'll filter everything else out. Um, <laughs> and the perfect opportunity in science will come to you. But what actually happened was kind of the opposite. It kind of taught me like, yeah, biology is really cool. I don't want to work in a lab. I don't want to work in research. Um, I don't know what I want to do at 23, <laughs> um, but I want to keep going. Uh, I did take a break. So let me ask you, you know, you said you didn't know what you wanted to do at 23. You were doing human biology um, and doing okay, right? Not necessarily passionate about it. So while you're going through and having these experiences, did the messaging change from mom and dad? Were mom and dad still okay with you doing human biology? Did you ever go to them and just say, I don't, I don't know if I want to do this? Um, yeah. So, so I kind of went to college knowing that's not what I wanted to do. I had studied the piano for 10 years. Um, I had studied singing for 10 years. Uh, I was very artistic. I would write a lot. Um, I would carry a notebook around with me. And when I got to college, that never ended. It continued except for the piano part because it's very hard to put a piano in a suitcase. So uh, choose an instrument that's easy to rent somewhere else if you take one up or be comfortable buying the digital version of it. We didn't have good digital versions back then, children, back in the 1900s. (laughs) Not very good at all. But... um, but I picked it back up since then. But anyway, um, I wasn't really sold that science was for me. And I kept getting the message. If you, if you get this degree and you get a job, you can do whatever you want to do afterwards. Be responsible about it. Um, or you have to do something that will give you enough money to survive. You don't want to be a starving artist. Or, um, you know, lots of other things that prioritize science, even just as process, you know, 
being a hemoglobin processor, being an STD test processor, you know, whatever it is. Um, those jobs are seen as more secure mm-hmm. than an artist or an artistic job. Um, when I went to college, I actually got a, a fellowship in poetry. So um, I had had a bad spell. I kind of took a semester to take whatever classes I wanted. And one of them was um, reading and writing poetry. And that particular professor could nominate someone for what's called a Leventhal tutorial in poetry, which basically means you sit with someone who's basically in grad school for poetry, who spends their whole waking life making and thinking and analyzing poetry um, with the possibility of applying later to a program. And I was nominated for that. I got it. I did it. Um, It was something that I excelled at. Um, And then I just kind of left all of that behind because of this idea that you have to do something that's lucrative. You have to do something that's scientific. Right. Um, and I think to this day, it's um, thank you for your therapy podcast, Dr. Sandeep, because I think to this day, it's, uh, it's also at the root of my fear of publishing. You know, like I have I probably have a chapter that I could easily work into an article. Um, but there's that fear of that's tied into it somehow. I guess it's just the best way that I can say it here and then pay someone else hundreds of dollars to analyze it live somewhere else in their office. <laughs> so I, we're going to get back to this article that, okay. that is sitting somewhere, sitting in your, in your head somewhere. Um, but you said, so I want to go back a little bit. You said um, at 23, you didn't know what you were doing. Um, you, you graduated from Stanford University, and then is that when you took a break? What What did you do next? What came next for you? Because I think, I, I you know, um, the ex- expectation is you graduate from Stanford University, and um, and the job's waiting for you, and yeah. you're be making a lot of money, right? Um, so, what was next for you? Um, I didn't make a lot of money. Um. <laughs> I found a job at the medical school, uh, the Stanford Medical School, working with youth. Um, And I worked there for about two, two and a half years. Um, I continued with writing and poetry. So I got, I even got a scholarship to go to the Napa Valley Wine Festival Poetry Conference, Creative Writers Conference. um, And uh, learned a lot about the relationship between writing and wine um, <laughs> and produced a lot of really, really wonderful stuff. And then personally things got difficult for me and I just decided, look, I need to take a break. I need to go home. Um, this isn't really the direction that I want to go in and I'm really frustrated. Um, so I called my parents and I told them that and they said, well, then have all your stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I did. Moved back to Texas uh, for about a year. Um, and I think um, 
one of the things that um, I was always upset about in my undergrad was that I didn't co-turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, which if you guys have listened to Dr. Salivar's podcasts, you know that it's putting in an extra year or two in your in your bachelor's degree in order to get a master's degree. Um, and one of the reasons I didn't do that was because I didn't think I was capable of it for many reasons. Um, but when I was at home, I really started to wonder, well, why? Why am I selling myself short? You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this is probably something that I can do. Um, and I found a Chicano Studies graduate program and I applied to it. I applied to other programs. I got into some of them. Um, some of them were creative writing programs. It, this was my chance to kind of move in a completely different direction. Mm-hmm. And tell <laughs> so my parents, like, okay, well, I did what you wanted me to for undergrad, but you didn't tell me anything for grad school. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, look, I mean, a couple, there are a couple of things. You, I mean, you, you've mentioned a lot, but the the insecurity that you had, I mean, I think maybe some of our listeners might say, well, but, but here you are, you graduated from Stanford university and, and, and you're questioning whether or not you, you, you should have done a master's degree, whether or not you um, um, could have done it. Right. Why, why is he insecure if he just graduated from Stanford university? There's one, that first part. Um, and then um, you decide you want to go to graduate school, and and what was it that you were that you were thinking like this is what I want to be doing? What do I like? I I and and I I ask because um yeah I have shared that I did the co-terminal degree, but I did the co-terminal degree because I had no idea where I was going. I didn't have any direction. I, I thought uh, like my last year at Stanford, I, I think it was, I was, I, w- I was scared. In, and for me, I mean, I, I dealt with, do I belong? I think my first two years very much. So I think my fourth year, it was, I'm just feeling comfortable now. I'm just feeling like I've found my groove and it's time for me to go. And everybody's got a job lined up and I don't. Mm. And I and so I stayed. I stayed and got a master's degree because I didn't have it all figured out. Um, and so I, I understand the insecurity a little bit. But tell tell us about where that was coming from for you. What was that? So I wish you guys saw the video because I like kind of clutched my pearls at that for a moment because I always saw that as Dr. Salini about it being like the responsible coacher, more credentials, more money, right? <laughs> um, and I and. There's a lot of answers to that. And the quick answer, which is not sociological, which I will give you right now and then straight after going to the next one, um, is that I was very lucky because my parents had started saving up for my education before I was born. Mm. So by the time I was in Stanford, they were using that um, as my tuition. And they basically told me, it has an end. So as soon as it's over, you're done. Make sure you graduate, right? Yeah. Um, so it was very, very finite. Um, 
And so that's why I didn't stay in co-term. I think I even had the conversation with my parents about it and they were like, look, if you do it, you better be serious about it. It, it better not just be that you don't want to find a job type of thing. Um, you know, um, they call it parents from the 50s and boomer parents. You know? <laughs> uh, we didn't have that term back then, but no. You know, I pretty much did the same, the equivalent of whatever. Okay, boomer. I'm already working at Starbucks. Okay. Which I was. Um, but I think one of the really beautiful terms that you know, uh, which has its roots in ethnic studies and law, um, is intersectionality. And that's kind of like a really beautiful term to sort of define and bring to this moment because it has so much to say about your question, um, not just for me, but for everyone who you ask in the future. Um, intersectionality is this recognition that all of us as human beings who live in society uh, live different categories in our lives. Um, so some of us are Mexican-American, some of us are Tejano, some of us are Latino, some of, uh, some of y'all identify as Hispanic. Um, whatever it is for you all. And then that goes on and on and on for other identities. There's ethnicity, uh, race, socioeconomic class, which is something that we've kind of been hinting about in this conversation. There's also gender, sexuality, geographic location, where you grew up, all those sort of things. And so for me, I think one of the really big important things, in addition to socioeconomics, um, you know, I did grow up seeing a lot of wealthy people come by and flash their money and kind of get the, that hidden curriculum of, well, this is this is what success is in this mm-hmm. sphere, right? Um, but I think the more salient thing is that I am an LGBT individual, I am gay, um, and I grew up in a very conservative environment uh, with a very loving family, but still a conservative environment has its effect on you. And so I think um, that process of coming out and kind of understanding who I was um, mm-hmm. and things were not the same then back guys. So it wasn't as safe as it was in the 1900s as it is in the new millennium. Um, we still had gay clubs and all that. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, you know, uh, it was just a different time. And so I think that was probably one of the bigger factors um, that led to my insecurity, especially thinking that people wouldn't want to hear my voice, what I had to say, um, <laughs> that what I had to say wasn't important. I remember being... I remember I was working at the medical school. I was about 21 or 22 years old. Um, Maybe I was 20. I was young and beautiful. That's all you need to know. And um, they had recently passed a law in San Francisco, which was for same-sex marriage. And this really interesting thing happened where all of a sudden the LGBT people in San Francisco started getting married right and left, people who were already in relationships, best friends started marrying best friends because they were like, we don't know if we'll be able to get married at all. 
And then um, protesters from Utah were actually shipped down by conservative organizations to protest in front of the state capitol or the city capitol um, because they felt that that would affect the quality of their marriage as heterosexuals. So I remember watching the news, getting ready for work and sort of thinking like, if I disappeared, that would be one more queer person that none of these people ever would have known about or cared about, Hmm. you know? Um, And I've come so far since then. So this isn't going to be one of those stories where it's like, I'm okay now. Oh my God. Cause I am okay. Um, But (laughs) I think the message here is that when you go through moments like that, you begin to question the value of what you have to say and the value of how you need to exist um, and it, it happens for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. Intersectionality is powerful because it can show you that in my life it's happened not just for sexuality, but also for ethnicity. So things changed when I moved to a different part of California. Um, and people, very conservative people, realized that I was Mexican-American. I was treated differently. Um, if you are a woman of color, if you're a queer woman, if you have these intersecting experiences um, oftentimes you may feel that the value of your voice and what you have to bring to the table is not as high as other people and I appreciate you sharing that story um, because I, I think is it's important that, that we think about those things and understand I think both of us at some point, right, we were insecure about whether or not we belonged and whether or not we could do something about the spaces that we occupy, um, but insecure maybe about different things, right? Um, and so I appreciate you sharing that. So you, you know, you find yourself out of school, back home, trying to figure things out. You said you applied to a couple of programs, graduate programs. Um, where did you go? Where did you go and what, what was what was next for you? So one of the reasons why I'm very not sure of myself is because I have this personality and people are just like, turn your unicorn off, dude. Just like hold it back. <laughs> um, what was the question? Oh, <laughs> next. So what was next for you? You said you applied to some graduate programs and... So I really, I, I didn't really have an idea of what I was going to do. All I knew was that I thought I was smart enough to be a professor. And that was sort of a way deep down dream to sort of master something enough to know how to teach it, how to live it, how to... Um, I did not know that there were different classes of professors, different classes of universities. I just thought like, oh, professors are professors. Professors are really, really smart people. Really. (laughs) And they all do the same thing. They all sit in their offices and read and grade and think and come up with ideas. And they don't? What? It sounds like graduate school was, was eye-opening, an eye-opening experience for you. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Can you hear my dog barking? Or is yeah. He... 
that, and that's okay. My, my at some point, I'm surrounded by three large dogs, and at some point, they're going to start barking. So okay, well, about five are about to run in because their other dad is <laughs> California. Oh. <laughs> Okay, so they're all story time. Come on. Okay. Um, what were we talking about? <laughs> Graduate school and professors not all doing the same thing. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you know, there's a whole hierarchy of colleges and universities out there. You have your community colleges, uh, you have your private colleges, um, which are kind of wild cards. Maori. No. Because you're going to wait outside. Okay. They're very angry because it's. Uh, I gave them all a haircut today, so they're like, "We need to eat now." You have done bad things to us. So I apologize. They'll be okay. They get very high quality canned food. So, um, <laughs> uh, but a lot of feminists. Well, not a lot. People weren't flocking to me or anything, but um, some very good mentors expressed interest in some of the things I was working on in sociology. And so um, very slowly, I kind of moved in that direction. I was told you should at least finish your work, your MA in Chicano studies before you move into sociology. (laughs) And so I did that. And then they said, great, now you have to start all over. (laughs) So I did that and um, because I already had a master's, I didn't, I wasn't eligible to get a second one. I just had to do what are called comprehensive exams. So the bottom line here is know what you're getting into (laughs) before you get into it. Um, Even if you really, really want it. I was successful. I wrote a dissertation on something that I thought was lucrative and interesting, uh, and I think now it is proving to be now that we have um, LGBTQIA, pansexual, demisexual, uh, transsexual, gender nonconforming. Um, now that the rainbow is growing, I think it is lucrative, even if uh, people are not reading it every day. Yeah. You know, I. I just going back to what you said about know what you're getting into. Um, you know, I, I come across a lot of students that say they're going to go to graduate school, but really without any clue, without any direction. I think, um, I think your example is important because um, not only just in terms of know what you're getting into, but know who the faculty are, right. And what are they, what they're studying and what they're passionate about and, and finding good mentorship once you get to graduate school. Um, I know I, 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 um, I had some good people that kind of guided me. And I, I think one of the things that made me a little more comfortable about staying in and even doing the master's was that I could just continue working with some of the faculty that I'd been working with in, in education. Um, but then even beyond that, when I was thinking about the doctoral program, 
I already knew there were a couple of faculty at UT that I thought, okay, those are the people that I want to be working with. So, um, so definitely, I, I think for our listeners out there, for those that are that are thinking about graduate school, think about what it is that you want to study, um, and then who are the people that are studying that, or who are the people that are, are in somewhat the same field that that might serve as good mentors and and uh, and good people to to give you some direction and some support. Um, so you do the master's in sociology master's and in I mean, I'm sorry, Chicano studies. Thank you. Um, and then the doctorate in sociology. Yes. And, and then what? And then you were ready. You thought you, I, at the end of your, of your program, did that confirm for you? You know what? I I've made the right choice. This is the work I want to be doing. Uh, for me. Yes. Um, for me, there was a component of my PhD where I did get to teach. I got to research. I got to teach about research. Uh, my mentor allowed me to teach some of her uh, specific classes, um, which I was just, which was really cool because I kind of did my own thing and made a film festival out of the whole syllabus. Um, uh, so teaching is something that I became passionate about and just being in the realm of learning and knowing things is mm. something that I'm passionate about. It was, um, there were also some other really good lessons in there about finding a, a healthy place, you know, because, um, there are, you will come into contact with some people in graduate school who are professors or who are administrators who aren't necessarily healthy mm-hmm. um, and who aren't out to see your success, just kind of out to see operations continue as they're going. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the important thing to know is that you don't necessarily have to fight that. You just have to find people who will work with you mm-hmm. and then things will be much smoother. Um, so I think, I think for me, there were a lot of life lessons built into it. (laughs) And I had to learn those in order to learn where I wanted to be. Um, I also had to learn a lot about where there was to be. uh, Because as I was finishing, you know, I was being told to start looking for a place. I was a lecturer in that same institution for one year before I left. but I had no idea that, you know, if you teach at a community college, you teach your core teaching load is five classes and anything else is extra money. But if you teach at a university, your core teaching load is two, three classes per semester. Um, so those things I didn't know. Some of the more practical things. Some yeah. Of the more- I... <clears throat> I hope our listeners don't feel like, like for those that are thinking about graduate school, that they feel like, um, like you're supposed to know those things. I, yeah. So one of the things I wanted to say um, was that if if you are thinking of changing fields, do it. You know, don't hold back at all. Yeah. Um, especially if you have a conviction and a knowledge that you are passionate about something. Um, that's very much honoring 
the potential that you know you have and the potential that you know that you want in the future, right? Um, there were people who I loved very deeply who were like, why are you going to Chicago Studies graduate? Why are you going into sociology, <laughs> you know? Uh, who told, who specifically told me to quit, uh, who are now very happy that I did not quit and who see me as successful. Um, and I think anything that you do will come with its challenges, even if it's the best job ever. Um, <laughs> if you pretend that heaven is a corporation, well, someone's there doing some of the menial work, right? So <laughs> even in heaven... Someone's like, oh my God, I have to sign the paper for someone to come through the gates. I wish yeah, I had a I, drink instead of gold ink, you know? I really hope Evan isn't like that, but you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Let me ask you, do you... Um, are you happy with what you're doing? I am. Uh, I'm very happy with the teaching. Um, <laughs> There's, a ha- There's a but. There's a but. Being a chair, but I'm learning that higher education administration uh, is very political, <laughs> um, and that's that's hard to that's hard for me to swallow as someone who sort of had a foundation in human rights type of work. Mm. So, so you've given, you've given our listeners, I think a lot of advice. Um, you know, if, if somebody wants to change their major, change the direction, change it, right. Follow your conviction. Um, what about for those that, that think, you know, the, the, your students, the ones that you work with that see you and see how much joy you have teaching for my students that see how much joy I have and um, that are thinking about going into higher education, that are thinking about becoming a professor, a lecturer, um, what advice would you give them? Uh, Don't give up. Don't give up and never... There are times that you will, you will doubt yourself. I will say this, mm-hmm. my dear children of the 2000s, as someone who lived through the 1900s and survived, <laughs> um, I think one of the most important lessons that I came to without really realizing it, and I tell this to everyone that goes to grad school and that I work with, especially that I work with. Um, and it's, it sounds like a warning, but it's not. It's more, if you approach it as a fact of life, it becomes something that you can minimize very, very effectively. Many of these inst- social institutions that you will go into in the future, education, maybe a particular field, maybe a particular level of society, the norms and sort of ceremonies that you have to go through, the hoops that you have to go through to sort of exist and be successful in those spheres, in some of them, not in all of them, but in some of them, are made to make you feel lesser. 
because then the person or the organization who is working with you has more control over yourself if you're always questioning yourself, right? Um, you're always meant to get another certification. You're always meant to show that you have another mastery. You're always meant to show that you're just that good. So the sense of questioning your value or knowledge of something is built into the system. Um, and so don't let it, don't let it game you. Don't let it get into your head. You know, like if you see yourself questioning yourself, just kind of saying, well, the system's doing what I'm, what it's supposed to do. I'm going to put that in an envelope, set it aside and know that at least I'm going in the right direction. Cause I know it's having that effect on me. If someone had told me that when I was 18 and I was going to Stanford, first of all, I don't know if I would have believed them. Second of all, I don't know if I would know how to do that, but it would have saved me a lot of second guessing and heartache, I think. Mm. And I would have made more headway faster. Mm-hmm. You'll, the doubt will always be there. You know, it's part of the journey. Um, don't stop because of it. Yeah. And if someone ever makes you doubt yourself, um, they're not a healthy mentor. Um, you should be with a mentor who lifts you up. That doesn't mean that everything you do is perfect. A good mentor will say, sometimes have to say, that really sucks. But they will always say, but this is how you make it better. Yeah. Or I could see value in this. <laughs> Before we go, this article, this article that's, that's on, on your brain, on your mind, what's, um, what's the hesitation? Um, I don't know. I've had this hesitation for years. You know, I graduated way back before this pandemic ever started, like half a decade, y'all. Um, And it's one of the chapters of my dissertation. And one time I even told someone from grad school, I was like, Post Malone is winning awards for his bullshit. And I'm afraid to publish this article. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And now I love Post Malone. So I have this little look at my Funko Pop, Post Malone. I'm going to, I'm going to hashtag him on my, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, post Malone in the college. (laughs) Um, I think it's just the, I I have a lot of theories, but I think I'm just afraid of the revise and repeat um, cycle. Since grad school, I've helped people publish their books by editing them, help people publish articles by editing them. Um, and so I think, (laughs) I think a big part of it is getting over my own ego, but also, um, just accepting that, uh, perfectionism is real. And if you can deal with it, you can move (laughs) past it. Um, and when you play the game of publishing, nothing will ever be perfect the first time you submit, even if it is, you know, even if your publisher says this is perfect, we're going to publish it as it is. Yeah. uh, Something will come up because life is born of chaos. And although it is beautiful, (laughs) 
it continues to exist chaotically. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> well, I I hope you you publish. I hope you write and I hope you publish because I think I think um if anything, you know, just from from what you've shared with us, um your voice is important and and I'm sure what you have to share is important and and will contribute to to sociology and and to to the <clears throat> to what you study. Um so you know, be ashamed not to not to get that out there. Thank you, and and, and get over yourself, man. Come on, just <laughs> <laughs> hey, dude. I'm not the one with the podcast who's got like a <laughs> on everything. <laughs> you know, um, so so you know, um, Mr. Coterm. <laughs> um, I <laughs> I was telling I was telling somebody, um, I think I'll be. I'll be attached to a number of publications this year and did the least amount of work on publications okay. this year. <laughs> Here's an interesting story for you. And, um, last story. And then, um, please share it widely. Um, uh, there, nothing happens by accident. I never yeah. believed that. Okay. Um, I worked on, this is a sad and happy story at the same time. Um, I worked on creating an archive for one of my professors who was a queer historian. And so someone that he had interviewed, a trans woman who was in her 60s and 70s and who passed away, um, her family was very transphobic and they kind of took all of her possessions, put them in a suitcase and gave them to him. And they were like, do something right so that suitcase was given to me and i was told create an archive out of it so i had to research how to create an archive i created an archive i created all of these collections i described it um and my professor was really happy with it he started writing articles with it he became very ill and he passed away and then the archive disappeared well wouldn't you know, but at the start of the pandemic, I kind of get a message saying, we understand that you worked on this archive with this amazing trans historical figure that people don't really know about. And we're going to publish whatever is left over. So can we interview you? I said, yes. Um, I have a credit in that. It's a beautiful coffee table picture book, which I'll send you. Um, couple of pictures from, uh, but it's called Remember Me, uh, Vicky Starr, The Life of a Trans Renegade. And I have a credit in that book for creating that archive that disappeared that somehow when I'm 41 and I'm deciding like, man, you know, I'm editing other people's stuff who are publishing and... Yeah. You know, Post Malone is publishing. Maybe <laughs> I should publish. And then, you know, here this comes. Yeah. Nothing happens by coincidence. So I um, thank you for uh, your podcast. I tend to and agree. Get over yourself, man. Get over yourself. <laughs> I'm so over myself. <laughs> I think that's why I have a podcast because I am totally, totally over myself. Um, Rolando, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, uh, thank you for sharing your story and thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, I appreciate, I appreciate your time. I know how valuable it is. 
And um, and so Anytime, I. Anytime, if you need like a comic relief couch person, you know, like if you get big funding <laughs> and they're like, hey, we want to hear more of that crazy rainbow unicorn voice, dude. <laughs> Give me a call. I'll be here. I, I, um, if you. Corn fat. <laughs> <laughs> if you, if you, uh, if you do have any, um, any ideas of, of where, you know, things that, that you think, I mean, I have a lot of ideas about where, what I'd like to do with the podcast and how I'd like to grow it. Um, ultimately, so a friend gave me a book and it was a, it was a book like, like how we made it or something like that. And I told him when he shared it with me, I said, Hey, Hey man, there are no people of color on this thing. And, uh, and he just kind of laughed and he said, he said, so write it. And, and so, you know, another inspiration for the podcast was just, you know, I, I know a lot of really amazing people that at, when I was a kid growing up, I, I didn't have those stories and I didn't know people doing that. And I know people doing amazing things now. And I think it's important to, to share those things. So thank you, you so much. You should ask Letty. Um, I know you kind of just met her over Blackboard, you know. <laughs> But she has an amazing story. She's from, from Puerto Rico. She grew up here. Um, she actually has traveled Mexico as a folklorico dancer. Um, she's a cancer survivor. So there's a lot to kind of explore with her. Absolutely. Well, send me, send me contact info, okay? Okay, I will. All right. Well, Rolando, thank you again. This, uh, this concludes another episode of the Way to College podcast. Thank you for listening and tune in next time for another episode. Bye-bye. Bye.